0: Well, this morning we're continuing to look at the book of Romans. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the thesis of this letter, which is very simply that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so the good news is that Jesus has come and will save everyone who believes. Then, as soon as he states the main idea like that, he comes in and he says, For the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And in my humble opinion, he starts on a rather sour note. It's like if I'm going to talk about good news... Why would the very first thing be the wrath of God is revealed? You see, that really is one of the things that we have to come to grips with. And that's, a lot of us don't like that. It doesn't strike our sensibilities delicately, shall I say. But I want you to think about it this way. My hope and my prayer as pastor is that you will love and delight in Jesus. I mean, really, it's not very complicated what I'm hoping for here, okay? I just want you to love and be happy in Jesus, okay? Because He saves you from your sin. Now, as... I say that, I I want you to imagine it a different way. Imagine that you were in your home and a fireman rushed in and rescued you and grabbed you, took you outside. Safety. And your life was spared. Would you appreciate that fireman? Would you even perhaps love that fireman and what that fireman has done for you? Would you be grateful to the fireman? Well, some of you are nodding. I think you probably would be grateful. And I think you might even love that fireman if your house is on fire. So you see, the prospect prospect of a fireman rushing into your house, grabbing you, hauling you outside, if your house isn't on fire, that is quite an interruption. Could you imagine? But for a lot of people who really are not clear about whether or not They need someone to save them. If you're not clear about that, Jesus is an interruption. Jesus is like that fireman rushing in to save you while you watch TV. And you don't think anything's wrong. And so, when we look at the book of Romans, and the Apostle Paul writes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He is alerting us to the fact that there is smoke and where there's smoke, there's fire. And you need to know that you are being rescued from a burning building and your life is in danger. And I want you to know that because we're going to make sure that we are clear on this. I mean, I, I talked to a pastor one time. I was just dumbfounded. And we were talking about parenting. And he didn't like the material that I had shared with them. And I asked him why. And he said, well, because they, they talk about children being sinners. And my first thought was, do you have different children than I do? <laughs> and my second thought was, and, and I, I asked him, and I said, don't you believe that? And he said, well, yeah, but we don't like to make a big deal about it. know, I mean, really, nobody likes to make a big deal about it. I mean, it really isn't the kind of thing that you get jazzed about saying, oh, yeah, my house is on fire. But the reality is the human condition is desperate. We do have a serious situation because of sin and the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so we're going to pick that theme up again. And, and, and I, I want to share it with you because I want you to recognize from what a dire situation you have been saved. See, that's why we love and appreciate Jesus so much. So Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 21. says, So here, very simply, you have a description of the human condition. The, the first thing that you must know, and this we saw last week too, is that human beings have a universal sense of God. I mean, this is, this is what it said in verse 20. It said, His invisible attributes. So the very fact that there is a God... And even though He's invisible, you can recognize Him. Namely, His eternal power and His divine nature, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So you must know that there is no mystery about whether or not there is a God and there is no mystery about whether or not this God is real because that has been seen in the things that are made. And therefore, he says, the house is on fire. They are without excuse. You can also say without hope. Because right here we have his description of what makes human beings accountable before God. They know there is a God, and so then you go to the next verse, and it says, "Though they knew God, so they have enough information about God to make an active decision about whether to pursue Him or whether to reject Him." And what He says then in chapter um, in, in chapter one, verse twenty-one is that although they knew God, they did not honor Him. There was a deliberate choice not to honor the living God. I want to step back here and have you think about this for a moment. They did not honor Him as God. This doesn't say... They're without excuse because they weren't a good person or because they weren't nice or because they weren't religious or because they weren't successful or because whatever whatever criteria you're looking for, the the criteria presented is before God they made a decision not to honor Him. In other words, The problem of sin is first and foremost a problem with God. This happens this happens all throughout the world. All you have to do is look at a shrine and, and see that there there is honor being given to ancestors, to an idol, to another religion, but not to God. That's the issue. As far as God's concerned, the issue is are people relating to Him like they should? I mean, people just find all sorts of ways to do this. And they have throughout human history. It's easy for us to get caught up in what happens in the jungle or what happens to the savage or what happens in another place. I want you to recognize what happens here and what the issues are here. Because. I I run into all sorts of people in all sorts of situations, motivational speakers and that kind of thing, that talk about, that talk about gratitude and talk about, um, uh, getting perspective and honoring, well, honoring, say, the universe. I mean, this is a, this is a motivational poster that I pilfered off the internet, right? Please don't worry, I've got you. Signed, the universe. Okay. What does this even mean? Well, what this means is that whether you say it's karma, whether you say it's something else, you're trying to say people get what they get because they're supposed to get it and the universe is going to make it happen. Somehow, that there's some sort of moral agentry to this material universe, which doesn't make any sense at all. It is a way... So, this is is the reason I show you this. I'm going to take it off because it's so dumb. This is a way that people get around the prospect that there's a living God. And so, they attribute attributes to the material universe that it doesn't have. And that mean that happens all the time. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks to him. And again, you have all kinds of people who suggest that you need to start your day with a with a, a daily practice of gratitude. You need to you know start your day by listing five things you're grateful for. Which is that's great advice. And when I hear that advice, I always ask, To whom are you grateful? To whom are you grateful? And for the most part, the answer is well the universe or the you know, Or it doesn't matter to whom you're grateful. It makes no sense to be grateful if you're not grateful to somebody. There might be a reason to be humble, but not to be grateful. And see, this is a problem. That whether people are grateful to something in um, general or nothing in particular, they're not grateful to the living God who created them. And this is the problem. Though they knew Him, they chose not to honor Him, and they chose not to give thanks. Author, 150 years ago, said ingratitude is a crime more despicable than revenge, which is only returning evil for evil, while ingratitude returns evil for good. And the Scripture is very clear that every good and perfect gift comes down from the, uh, the Father of the lights with whom there's no variation in shadow of turning. And to be grateful specifically to Him is the requirement. And people aren't. They're not here and they're not around the world. And so, part of the reason we're without excuse is that our gratitude is not toward God. We don't honor Him as God. When that happens, when we actively make the decision not to honor Him, actively choose not to be grateful to Him, we become futile in our thinking. I mean, as you, some of you are snickering about my quote from the universe. Okay, that is an example of futile thinking. It's an example of making something up, right? To substitute for something that I might otherwise believe. And this futility in thinking is um, its everywhere. And it's part of the problem. But it's a result of the previous choices. They're futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we have... Not only an understanding problem, we have an affection problem. We we have not only a a problem with our intellect, we have a problem with our emotions. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They don't love the things that they should love. They don't enjoy the things they should enjoy. They don't feel about their life the way they should feel about it. And so there is this, this... disconnect between the way that we ought to to be and the way we actually are as a result of not relating to God in the right way. I'm going to come back to those in just a moment. Being futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise... They became fools. I mean, this is, this is the same problem. The understanding's got a problem, the heart has a problem, and so, thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. I want to help you think about this, not, not in terms of those other people out there that I, that I want to be better than. Okay, please don't do that. But rather, I want you to understand the the pressure that's on you with regard to your own foolishness, with regard to your own uh, the darkness of your own heart and the the clouding of your own intellect. I want you to recognize the danger that the people around you are in as you process this text that says they're um It says they became futile in their thinking, then their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. They became fools. Tim Keller, in my estimation, has done as good of, uh, as helpful a work in this as anybody. And he just suggests in uh, his book, Making Sense of God, if there is no God, then either original matter sprang from nothing or original matter has always existed without a cause or there is an infinite regress of causes without a beginning. Each of these answers takes us out of the realm of science and the universe as we know they are nothing short of miracles. You see, I mean, the way that you think about the world you're in uh, tells a lot about even your relationship with God. Yeah, you probably heard they, they found uh, seven planets that may be habitable. You know, just... Uh, just down the street in the universe okay 39 light years away which that's pretty interesting okay i mean i i can see i can see my middle school self getting pretty excited about that you know 39 light years away which if human beings were to travel there it's only 842,000 years it would take to get there. Hmm. So, you know, how do you think about these things? You, th- you have to think about it. is there a God or is there not a God? What, where, what is my baseline going to be here? He goes on and suggests this. See, the humanistic moral values of secularism are are not the deliverances of scientific reasoning. Okay, the claiming to be wise, right? But they have come down to us from older times. They have a theological history. And modern people hold them by faith alone. Do you realize that kindness or tolerance, the things that you hear so much about is, is public values? Those are not... Natural results of science, at least they're not with um, you know lions and gazelles or anything else you might see on the you know National Geographic channel or anything like that they're they're just that's just not the way it works. They have a theological history they they presuppose that there is a God. Who, who has a statement of values. And so for us to dispense with that God and try and hold the values, we hold the values still by faith. That's his argument. Or another. He says, if your premise is that there, that there is no God leads most naturally to conclusions you know are not true. And now you might say, how could that be? That moral obligation or beauty or meaning, the significance of love, our consciousness of being a self are all illusions. Okay? If, if it doesn't follow that all those things that are so much part of our lives, that don't, they don't follow from the, the way that we think about the world, why not change the way we think about the world? That's his suggestion. I'm only only sharing this with you because I I want you to realize that there is an incongruity between the the assumption that there is no God and the life that most people want to lead. And when that happens, we, we tend to try and brush off that inconsistency. Or, to put it another way, we become futile in our thinking, our foolish hearts are darkened, and claiming to be wise, we become fools. And so I I just want you to realize that when we're talking about a, a living God who expresses His wrath against sin, we're talking about a living being for whom, or whose existence, excuse me, Makes this world a consistent place. How can you be angry with someone for holding different values than you if God can't be angry with somebody for holding different values than Him? You see, we just completely try and unravel this world and hope that somehow it makes sense. It's not a big surprise. That everyone's yelling at each other and no one's really listening. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's the result of this initial uh, decision not to honor God and not to be grateful to Him. Okay? Then. Says that they claimed to be wise, became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. So they exchanged the glory of God for images. Okay, this is a this is a again, this is a natural thing that human beings do. He probably has in mind here Psalm 106, okay, which then also is a reference to the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Those of you that may remember this story that Israel's delivered from Egypt. They went through the Red Sea miraculously. All of Pharaoh's army was killed. And, and then they began to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they went in the promised land. And when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He was there a little longer than they wanted him to be. And they all said, what's become of him? We don't know. Aaron said, why don't you give him your jewelry? We'll melt it down. And he melted it down and he made a golden calf. Okay, One of the most infamous uh, episodes in the entire Old Testament. Psalm 106, it says, doing that, they exchanged the glory of God. I mean, who, by the way, at that time, was just up on the mountain, a, a small distance from the, the people, and there was thunder and lightning, and uh, the ground underneath them looked like sapphire. I mean, it was a big deal. They just chose not to honor Him, not to be grateful. Their foolish hearts were darkened, or their futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, they claimed to be wise and were fools, and they said, let's make us a calf so they did They began to worship this calf, exchanging the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things for them in Egypt, wonderful works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. They just forgot. That is the human condition. Again, is that a human condition that only... That they only have in you know the the Ten Commandments movies, or do they have that? Do we have that now? Tim Keller uh, suggests that when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness, self worth, and self worth, it is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. When you are looking to something for your happiness and self worth, it becomes functionally an idol to you just like the calf did in the wilderness to the children of Israel they were there frightened out in the wilderness had only been slaves what are we going to do let's make something that will make us more secure and so they did and so he suggests that we do that all the time and we do it with we might do it with the car that we drive we might do it with the uh, Education that we gain or the credentials behind our name. We might do it, we might do it by trying to create a family that, um, everyone admires. Whatever it is, we're building for ourselves idols. Here, here, he suggests that sometimes those idols are good things. Family achievement, work, career, romance, talent, etc. Even gospel ministry. He says, and we turn that good thing into an ultimate thing to give us the significance and joy that we need. And that's what an idol becomes. And so all I want to suggest to you is that we tend to create these when we are not actively choosing to honor God and be grateful. This is part of being thinking we're wise and becoming fools. Part of having our foolish hearts darkened. Part of being futile in our thinking is that we're going to create lesser things that will give us what we hoped God would give us. Now, why would people do that? David Wells, in his, his book, God in the Wasteland, suggests this. He says, why do people choose to substitute over God himself? Probably the most important reason is that it obviates accountability to God, or gets rid of accountability to God. We can meet idols on our own terms because they're our own creations. They're safe, predictable, controllable. They make us feel wise, even though we're foolish. And so it's very. This is a very subtle thing, and I. I just want you to recognize that it, it happens out there, sure. Yeah, and it happens on the other side of the world. It happens in the jungle. It happens in the desert. But it happens in the city and it happens in the school and it happens in the workplace. It happens in your families. We meet them on our own terms. And all of that comes from John Calvin. Okay, John Calvin was one of the first Protestants to to ever think about this, and he said, "Hence we may infer that." And this is a long time ago, so this is why the language is a little different. "Hence we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols; that the human mind is continually creating idols." And he had in mind he had in mind the Catholic Church. He was pointing a finger at the Catholic Church. For all of their statues and all of their saints and all of their images, he okay. said, so "Thus indeed it is. The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity, and it labors under the dullness. nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes the vanity, it substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God." so i'm just going to go back and say listen there is there is a lot of north america there are a lot of people in your sphere of influence who are thanking the universe who are substituting a phantom in the place of god i mean it's it's crazy He said, to these evils another is added, the God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol and the hand gives it birth. And so I imagine, I mean, I know countless people just for the circles I travel in that think that somehow sports is going to give their children meaning and purpose and everything in life. In reality, it's not going to. But their mind conceives it, so their hand gives it birth and they're off doing something today. And so choosing to honor God, choosing to be grateful to God, starts us down a different path than it does to ignore Him. And when we ignore Him, we in effect exchange this phantom for the true and living God. You see, what, what, what I'm trying to show here, I'm just going to say, what I'm trying to, to, to show is that it is the human tendency to substitute for God. It is the human tendency to find Reasons that we can ignore him. And when you look around and you say, But that's a pretty good person, why would God condemn that person? You are, in effect, saying it does not matter that they disrespect or dishonor God. It doesn't seem, it shouldn't matter people should be able to dishonor God and be ungrateful to Him without recourse. Okay, And when I say it that way, you think, no, they shouldn't be. But see, when we think of people as inherently innocent, so that, oh, we don't, why would that person end up, say, going to hell? We are assuming some things about that person that are untrue. Okay. Worse than that, if you're here this morning and you are uncertain about whether or not you have uh, settled things with this living God, you're doing the same thing. I mean, all of us at one time have been making up these reasons to ignore God. These reasons not to honor Him. In hopes that that would would enable us to avoid the, the moral implications of having a God in heaven. If you're doing that this morning, I just want you to know, your house is on fire. You are in a desperate, desperate way. The wrath of God is revealed against that very attitude, that very thing. And I want to plead with you to turn to God as your Savior. What I mean by that is that there, you might say, there is a fireman in the world, and God is the one who will save. And he's the one that's provoked, and he's also the one that will save. And Jeremiah chapter 2, I, I, I forgot this, but Jeremiah chapter 2 says, Has a nation ever exchanged its gods, even though they're not gods? For my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. It's the same thing we are just talking about. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Everyone should be amazed that somebody would trade a phantom for the living God. And he says, my people have committed two evils. This is the guilt. They have forsaken me. It's one thing to turn your back on God. okay, And that he was a fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. To trade the fountain of life for a cracked pot that won't collect any water. And see, that's what it is. When you say, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to not honor God. I'm going to not be grateful. I'm going to go my own way, do my own thing. You're forsaking the fountain and you're clinging to whatever drop of water might be in that, that uh, idle basin of yours. And so being provoked by those two evils, God also proposes to rescue and He says, He doesn't say, better improve yourself. Better get out of the house while there's, you just smell the smoke. He says, I will. Notice this? There is a Savior here. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I and you shall be clean from all their, your uncleanness and from your idols, I'll cleanse you. And so, God is rushing in to rescue you from this phantom-like exchange that you're making. He says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, be careful to obey my rules. You'll dwell in the land I'll give you that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. As a result of submitting to the living God. As a result of turning to Him to find life. As opposed to to rejecting the hope that you might find life somewhere else. And so God promises to come in and save. And you see, ultimately... Ultimately, we're not afraid to talk about God's wrath. We're not afraid to talk about sin. We're not afraid to say you're accountable for your actions because we also know that there is a Savior in heaven and the best news of all is that He loves you and longs to rescue you from your sin. That's why we love Him. That's why we turn to Him in faith and say, won't you please rescue me? See, that's where, that's where the teaching about the wrath of God and the holiness of God and sin comes in. Because if we don't get that, it doesn't make any sense why we would think about a Savior. Why we would need someone to forgive us. And so all of this comes at the very beginning of Romans as sort of a foundation to recognize we need a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, um, on the one hand, humbling to think that just by virtue of being human, we do these things. And yet it's extremely hope-giving to recognize that You alone can save us. And so God, I pray for every person here that You would cause us to cease from making things up about You and making things up about our own ability to save ourselves and run to You as a Savior and trust You and love You because You sent Your Son to die on the cross that we might have life and be made truly alive. God, we thank You in the name of Jesus. Amen.